Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Beth McMullen is a fiction author, and her book, Happily Ever After, is like nothing I've ever read. You know, one of the things that I want to say, it's really important to me because I really value you listeners out there, is that I get pitched every day from tons of people. I have more pitches than I have actual airtime. And so, you know, out of the people that I get pitched from, I'm really selective about who I bring on. And while Beth is a friend of mine and, you know, I've, I've read some of her other stuff and liked it, when I was reading Happily Ever After, there's always a little concern of, okay, this is a friend of mine. Well, I like her book. And I did. And I don't get to read a whole lot of fiction books. Mostly the books that I talk about on this show are nonfiction but it was just a nice escape from my everyday reality. And it was nice to be drawn into a book where I kept wanting to go, ooh, I want to go back into this and, and leave my regular, regular life. So Happily Ever After is her book. It's coming out soon. It's a fun read to escape from your daily real life, which is her own personal life goal. And you, some of you guys may remember Beth here before as we talked about the mindset of a fiction author in her book, The Spy Mom, which was also a fun read. So Beth is here today, and we're going to talk about kind of the the book industry, and the book Happily Ever After and how it all kind of goes together. So Beth, hello and welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this book Happily Ever After, this is different than your other books that you've written. Yeah, it's a it's actually a, a 180 from the mystery series that I had done before. Um, it's more of a romance, but what I thought was fun about it is that it's a romance that deals with... Um, 40-something-year-old woman, which you don't see a lot in the romance genre. Um, so that was kind of fun to jump into that and explore what the romantic life of somebody in that age group would be like. You know, I, I liked it because it was, yeah, you're right. The, there's that 40-something person, you know, and there's this going back and forth in these two different worlds and then how they get, you know, blended. I don't want to give it away too much, but, um, and that was kind of fascinating. And there were some tweaks in there that at first I had a little resistance to, because that's not like kind of my thing. I'm, I'm a little bit more practical because, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction, but it was, it was fun. And I, one of the things that I loved about your book happily ever after is I never knew where it was going. Like I couldn't predict it, you know, so often I can feel like, oh, okay, this is what's going to happen. And this will be next in the story. Right. But I couldn't predict. That actually happened to me while I was writing it. I had no idea where I was going. Um, no, not entirely, but it, I started out with a totally different concept than where I ended up. Um, it came up, I can't even remember how I got the idea, but it was around the time um, Fifty Shades of Grey was so huge and everybody was talking about it and you couldn't you know, turn around without somebody saying, hey, did you read this book? And I don't read erotic fiction, I never have. Um, but I started thinking about, well, who's writing this stuff? I was so curious about the people behind the fiction. Uh, and so I, I kind of dug around a little and I found a bunch of interviews from erotic fiction writers who are very, very popular. And they're these very regular people who don't tell their neighbors, don't tell their friends. They keep it on the down low that they're doing this. They're making huge amounts of money, but 
nobody knows what they do. And I thought, okay, this is a great story. There's a great story in here somewhere. Um, I just have to find it. And, you know, I think that's fascinating because we, and you point this out in the book with the character, we tend to think that, wow, the person that's writing this has really lived it to tell it. Have it, have it. Don't we think that as, as, as readers? Yes. I, uh, my last series of books was about a um, retired spy. And I cannot tell you how many people asked me if I was a spy. <laughs> and I said, no, if I was a spy, I wouldn't have to write about it. Um, yeah. So that is another fascinating thing about this erotic genre. These are women who are not living this life. This is pure imagination. It's their fantasies writ large. Uh, and that's really the main, what the main character in, in Happily Ever After, whose name is Sadie, is doing. Her life looks nothing like her fiction. It, it, and then it, her life looks a lot like our lives. Exactly. <laughs> kind of a mess. <laughs> Stressed out, overworked, tired. Yeah. And, and just the contrast between the fiction and the reality was so rich. There's so much in there that I think so many people relate to um, that it was just really fun to to dig into that and see, okay, what does her day-to-day life look like? And what is she doing? And then she's coming back at night and going into her office and writing this steamy prose that, you know, just it's a it's an escape. And so when you um with Sadie, how much of your character Sadie is you? A funny uh, it's I relate to this character certainly more than I related to my my spy character because we're of similar age. We're in a similar profession, even though I don't write erotic fiction. Um, I related to the the pull that you experience when you've got so much on your plate that you feel like you can't take a breath. Um, I related to her the way that she was dealing with the interruptions in trying to work. I mean, most people think that to be creative, you have to have this bubble that you enter and everything needs to be quiet and, you know, soft music playing in the background. And when the urge hits you, you just must attend to it immediately. And it's nothing like that. It's a job and you show up and you do it. And if you're not feeling creative at nine o'clock, well, you better figure out how, because at two 30 or four or whenever you're going to have to quit and that's going to be it for the day. So I related to the, the struggle of, well, as any working parent would understand the struggle of your profession versus your personal life and how do you manage those? I won't even say balance because I don't think it's possible, but how do you manage it? Well, before we got on the air here, we were talking about balance and and I just say, you know, I don't believe it. What are your thoughts about balance? That it's a nice idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice idea, but I also think the conversations that you hear so often in the media about achieving balance makes most people believe that there are folks out there who have have done it. And in some ways, that's debilitating because you start to think, well, what's wrong with me? I don't feel balanced. I feel like a mess. I don't know if I'm coming or going. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And if, you know, Susie down the street can be balanced, why can't I? So I, I try not to listen to that stuff. I find it it's distracting. So what I want to do is make sure at the end of the day that everybody's fed and alive. And if they are fed and alive, then I feel like I've done my job, more or less. You know, I started, Beth, I started this show eight years ago or so 
because I was in search of that life balance. My daughter was in kindergarten. I had another daughter in preschool, and then I had two older kids from our blended family, and um, and they were in high school. And then I was a working mom, and I was trying to just figure out like how can I do it. So that's why the show's name is How She Really Does It. And what I've come to learn over these years, and you know, interviewing tons of experts and tons of successful people, is that there really, for me, there's no such thing as life balance. It's it's like what you said. Are we are the people I love? Are they being taken care of? And some days it's like the bare minimum we can get through and that's okay. And then there's, there are those moments where it becomes extraordinary, but really the ordinary is the extraordinary. Don't you agree? Yeah. And that was, that was something I found so fascinating about writing this book is that I was looking at this woman's ordinary life and taking it apart and looking at the details and that that's most of us. Most of us exist in those ordinary details. Um, and they can be very poignant. You know, you can have moments where you feel a lot of raw emotion over something that on the surface seems very bland, but that's the way that, th those are the moments that we are mostly in. So I think it's, you know, it's important to acknowledge that we're doing the best we can, but also to forgive ourselves when we phone it in. There are some days where you just phone it in. You're not going to the gym. You're not eating well. You're, you know, you missed a pickup of a child somewhere and someone had to call you and say, where are you? I mean, you gotta, you gotta give yourself a little bit of slack now and then. And that, and those are really good points because that's living a real life, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that's what I, that's what I was going for in this book. I wanted Sadie to be relatable, to be real, to not be a heroine from one of these erotic romances who is so not regular. And that's why I think they do so well and people really like them is because it's such an escape. But with Sadie, I wanted people to say, yeah, I I, I felt that way or I've, I totally know what she's thinking right now because I've had that experience, um, which I think it's also good to see that in fiction, people who feel or look like you might. Well, and I wonder if now is a good time for a book like this because we're so into, you know, the reality TV and what's really real, what's behind the scenes, right? The stuff that she talks, because Sadie's an author and the stuff that she talks about her process, I was like, wow, authors do this, right? Because we do have this kind of romanticized vision of what an author does, what, what is their life Authors like? sit alone <laughs> a lot. No, I mean, it's funny. I, I spend so much time by myself in my own head. Um, I need to be really careful about transitioning back into civilized society at the end of my workday because I'll be thinking things and I won't say them out loud. And I'll assume that whoever's with me can hear what's going on in my head. So you do, you have to jump from one to the other and remind yourself that in the real world, people talk, they don't just think things. So <laughs> you do these, these strange transitions. Um, but I will say a writing life is not glamorous. I do have some roles for myself and one involves that I must put on pants with zippers and buttons. I feel like if I don't have a pair of pants that has a zipper and a button, I'm on a slippery slope down to, I don't know, sweatpants, t-shirt. So there are certain things that you build in to make sure that you're not completely going down the rabbit hole. So it sounds like structure is really important in your writing life. It is. And I mean, that goes back to my point about creativity. You, um, Yes, there are moments when you feel much more creative and the ideas are flowing and that's great, but it is a, a job. There are people waiting for your pages. You have obligations, so it's not as if you can just wait for those moments to arise. You have to figure out how to create space for them. 
So I have a very structured day. Um, I drop my kids off at school at 8.30. I sit down at my desk in uh, my office, and I'm there until about 2.30. I stop for half an hour for lunch, but that's it. I don't. I rarely talk on the phone. I try not to answer emails. I don't go on social media. Um, it's really just this is the writing time. And you may throw away everything you've done that day, but at least you're doing it. And as you're doing it, you're practicing. And so it's it's just like anything that you're trying to get better at. You've got to put in the hours. Okay. So when she was talking, when Sadie was talking about that, like, I can just write a book and then throw it away. My heart was like, <laughs> right. Because when you're a person who measures productivity based on or success based on productivity. And as you said that again, I, I like cringe. I mean, you know, we live in this transactional world where it's like, okay, I did this. So what am I going to get? You know, how, how does that work for you to throw it away? I have a graveyard on my laptop um, where half finished manuscripts go to die. And that section of the book is really was very personal um, because this happens a lot. For everyone you hit over the wall, you have a handful of corpses <laughs> lying there. So it's it's something that you have to accept going in. You're not always going to succeed. Um, I spent the first half of, I guess the second half of last year, working on a manuscript that I thought was good. I love the idea. Um, when I showed it to a few people, including my agent, lots of negative feedback. This doesn't work. We don't like the characters. It's not, it's just not gelling. So I went back and I reworked it, got the same response. And then I let it go. That's six months of work that's gone with nothing to show for it. But you have to take the long view that six months of practicing I was practicing. So the next time I get up at that, I'll do better. Um, if you think about it as, I just lost six months and I have nothing to show for it, you'll panic and you will stop doing what you're doing. You really, this is not a profession where you can say, I'm going to give it a year and if it doesn't work, I'm going to quit. Um, you have to be in for the long haul because a lot of times it takes, it takes a long time to get where you're going. You know, that sounds like you have this... Um growth mindset where you don't make it mean that, okay, I'm now going to have horrible books because nobody likes it. You're just like, I, this is a practice. And today this, these last six months weren't great, but there are things, there'll be nuggets that I'm going to learn from it and be able to apply later on. It's true. You do. You take things that you've practiced. I was writing in a style that wasn't necessarily the most comfortable for me. And that stretches your ability. Um, so that's helpful. Um, I, I think it's just you really do have to steal yourself for it. It is not a kind industry. It's not going to hold your hand. Um, you have to believe that you can get from point A to point B under your own power. Um, yeah, and you can't have a thin skin. I mean, my agent, who I have a very good relationship with, she's fabulous. Um, she said, I hate this. <laughs> Those were her words. And you can't go, oh, my God, she hates me. It's me. It's not you. It's it's work. So you really do have to separate you personally from the product that you're producing. They are not the same. And you're going to get your feelings hurt if you think that they are. Have you always been like this? No, no. I mean, I think... I think this is something you learn gradually. No, 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 no. I, I used to take everything personally. If somebody could look at me wrong and I'd be upset. But um, I've learned with a handful of misfires that 
if I couldn't take it, I would have to do something else. You really do have to be able to take it. And there are days when it's real easy and it just rolls off your back and you think, okay, well, I tried. It didn't work. And there are days when it's really, it'll eat at you and you've just got to let that, got to let that go. Um, how do you get into that place where, okay, six months and this work hasn't produced and you know, there's also the reality of an income stream, right? So what, how do you work through that part? You, um, I think you have to think ahead. Um, authors will get paid. You'll usually get an advance from a publishing company. Once you've sold a manuscript that will allow you enough income to write the rest of it. So for instance, I don't sell a whole book. I sell about 10 chapters and an outline. And so then I have usually about four or five months to complete the manuscript. And then we'll do four or five months of editing. And then there'll be a long lag where the book is in what they call production. So it's being proofread and designed and all that stuff. So you've got about eight months where you're dedicated to that book entirely. And hopefully your advance covers that. Um, and then you get obviously the sales, but you're also a good agent will be out there selling your book to foreign markets, to film, to television. So what you're doing is trying to maximize the product that you've already produced by reselling it in all of these markets. Um, and so there are lots of different, there are lots of different venues. There are book clubs that will, you know, buy your book. And so you want to try to, and it's not even so much you, it's your agent trying to, to push your work down these different channels. So essentially, once you start to write books and you've got books down the down the, the line, I guess, is that you, you're creating multiple streams of income so that you can have that space to yes. work on your work. And as you add to your backlog, so as you get more things out there into the market, those continue to produce revenue while you're working on the new one. So these things all, I think the very beginning, the first few books that you sell, that's the hardest part to manage financially. Um because you will have moments where you feel, well, what if I don't sell anything else? <laughs> what am I going to do? This money's going to run out. And mm -hmm. then where am I? So that's another thing. You've got to put those thoughts in a box in the back of your head because they're debilitating and distracting. So um, you have to manage, I think, with you have to have the mindset that you're being paid over time when really it's coming as, as a chunk, several chunks. They usually will pay you when you sign your contract when they quote unquote accept your full manuscript, which is more of a technicality, and when they publish your book. So you'll get your advance in three chunks, which helps spread it out. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there's royalties. And then there's royalties. And depending on your arrangement with the publishing house, that will vary um, the amount that you get per unit. I think eBooks are on a different structure than hardback or paperback or any of those things. And then, yeah, you want to plug into the foreign markets. You want to plug into Hollywood. They love to buy stuff. They may never do anything with it, but they'll buy it and that's <laughs> fine. So, you know, I've been down that road a dozen times where I've sold the same thing multiple times um, because an option will be had on it. It will run out. Someone else will pay the option. It'll run out. Someone else will pay the option. <laughs> so you're creating these multiple revenue streams wherever you can. And Really, that's the business side. That's more your agent. You want to, when you're looking for an agent, you want to make sure they understand that, that they're good at that, um, that they can point to things they've done. Um, a knowledge of foreign markets is really important or a partner who specializes in foreign market markets is fine. But those are all things that you want to, you really want to take advantage of. 
Now the agent you have now is that have you always had her? I have had her from the beginning, um, and she works with a group called Writers House in New York, um, and she's great. She's she's a creative partner. I think of her as more of a creative partner. Um, I always run through ideas with her before I get going on something. She's got great input. Um, she knows the market so so well. So um, yeah, she's been she's been fabulous. So how hard was it to get her? Because I hear horror oh, stories all the time. It's terrible. <laughs> it's a terrible. It's it's just so everybody has a book in them. And so many people are so dedicated and they actually produce the book and then they have this thing and they say, well, now what do I do? Well, I have to get an agent. Publishers, traditional publishers will not take an unsolicited manuscript. So if you package up your book and you send it to Random House, they're going to send it right back to you unopened. They can't open them. So you need an agent to work on your behalf because that's where the publishers get their materials. So getting an agent is, you know, it's kind of like dumb luck and, and perseverance rolled together. Um, first of all, your stuff has to be good. It has to be the best that you can get it. I don't necessarily recommend that you hire a professional editor to go through it before you submit, but it's got to be the best that you can get it. You've got to be confident that this is your your best work. And then you have to either send it out cold to agencies, which some people have no choice. That's what they have to do. My agent told me, what is the statistic? She takes something like 0.01% of what comes across her desk. Will she take people on as clients? It's a terrible, terrible number. Better not to think about it. What you need to do is work your contacts. Find somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows an agent. What you want to do is get out of the slush pile. So with my agent, I actually had a good friend who our boys went to preschool together. She had a roommate from medical school who was best friends with a very big name agent in New York. And so I wound this weird path toward getting my stuff in front of my agent who then sent her friend an email and said, I don't read this kind of stuff. My, my agent did things like Cold Mountain and Memoirs of a Geisha. She, she doesn't do more genre-y type stuff, but she said, I'll read it because you asked me to read it. And then she took me on. So, I mean, the chances of her looking at my manuscript, if it was in the slush pile, I just mailed it to her cold, were zero. So here's this weird relationship that I kind of followed down and I managed to, you know, get in her door. So you've got to work the... The angles and don't be shy about asking your friends or your coworkers or your neighbors, who do you know? Well, it takes courage, doesn't it? It does. Because you're you're going to have those moments of doubt where you think, well, nobody's going to want to read this book. It's terrible. I can't believe I'm even considering it. For me, I would still be working on my first manuscript if my husband hadn't said, if you don't send it out, I'm sending it out because I'm sick of hearing about it. You got to let it go at some point, but it is a leap of faith, which can be nerve wracking. Well, I appreciate that candidness because so often I think we're thinking, oh, fame will just find me, right? <gasps> oh, dear. But it, to, it, you risk vulnerability because somebody could say like you could have reached out to that friend, mm-hmm. you know, and she could have said, no way, I don't do stuff like that. But you have to ask. You have to be willing to put yourself out you there. You do. And I'll tell you something. My first novel, which never saw the light of day. I sent out to, I think, 57 agents, none of whom I had a personal connection with. 
and it got rejected by every single one. And what they did, I mean, it, you have to you have to be ready for a certain degree of hum- humiliation. I mean, they would send me these slips of paper. So imagine a, a regular sheet of paper cut into like five strips. And on, on the strip would be this crooked, photocopied, thank you for your submission. It's not for us. And that's what you'd get in the mail. You'd get this, I mean, the sort of thing where you're thinking, I spent so much time on this and they can't even give me a full sheet of paper on my rejection. But I kept those rejections. I have them in an envelope. And on those days where you're thinking, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I look at those and I think, no, I got over this hurdle. I can get over the next. So I want to go back to when you talked about your why. Like, you know, I said this book is a great escape from your daily real life. And isn't that your why? Why you write books? That is. I mean, I think the the greatest... The reason that I read, and I am a voracious reader, I read you know every free moment that I can, is I want to get out of my own head. I don't want to hear my own voice. I don't want to think about my own you know little problems, whatever they are. I want to separate. I want to do something that when I get to the end, I'm going to feel refreshed because I've managed to get out of my own life. It's like a little mini vacation without the travel inconveniences like airline tickets and whatever. Um, So that's the experience that I want to create whenever I sit down to write a book. Can I write something that's going to suck you in enough that you will get that temporary escape? And that's, I mean, that's the why of the whole thing. And, um, and I love that because that's what it's your why, but you're also providing that space for your readers, you know, that it's okay. This is, this is a form of for me to read fiction was a form of playing, right? Like I don't go play at the playground. And when I think, and I'm a person that, you know, is learning how to play, but re- reading something that's totally purposeless, right? Reading happily ever after is not going to make me smarter, but it's fun. Yeah. And fun is, I think we don't give enough um, credit to just fun, to enjoyment with no particular goal. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's really, that's what I want to provide. I, I love books where I can't wait to get back to it. I can't wait to see what happens. I'm thinking about the characters all day long. And I mean, that's a really good break for your mind. It, you know, it kind of, it shifts you out of the normal stuff. Um, and you might come away feeling really refreshed and that's great. Or you'll stay up too late reading and feel, you know, all tired in the morning. That's the other, I do that too. <laughs> you know, with the work that I do and with my clients, I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot about is, you know, trying to get into that feeling state. So if you're stressed or you have all, you're overwhelmed and you have all the stuff, one of the nice things about going to play or getting wrapped up in something else is that it's a way to decompress. It's a way to, you know, find happiness or to see something or even to read happily ever after I mean, My big takeaway is, see, we all, we all have illusions of what the idea is supposed to be, but here's really the reality, right? And that's why I do, I think I loved your book so much was because here is the reality, well, her reality, right? And that it's not this um, glamorous thing. It's, it's the ordinary, right? It gives me more evidence. But it also gets me into that feeling state of just feeling good instead of going on, like sometimes I'll joke, okay, you can go on Facebook and see everybody's highlight reel <laughs> and I don't feel so good, right? <laughs> Facebook is the worst for making you feel good about yourself because you come away and you think, I had such a full calendar today and I did all these things, but this friend that I went to high school with who lives all the way on the other side of the country and haven't seen her in 25 years, 
look at everything she did today. <laughs> I'm a loser. I need to recalibrate this whole thing. No, I I actually avoid Facebook for that because I find that I come away with this sense of doom about not about me. And I'm thrilled for all of my friends who are out there, you know, kicking butt in the world. But I come away thinking, I, I have to do more. I need to do more. I'm not doing enough, <laughs> which is not a helpful place to be. <laughs> no, because when your calendar is already pretty full, right? what do you do? And you think, where I can't possibly, I could give up eating or sleeping, I guess. But, <laughs> I, you know, that doesn't have, that's not good for long-term, a long-term prognosis. So, so for you as the author, it's, it's a way for you to get out of your own head. You in, and you're inviting, it's almost an invitation of, okay, we're going to go along with you and go do something else and play and give our brains a rest mm -hmm. at trying to fix problems, trying to be productive, trying to be the mother of the year and just go enjoy ourselves for a bit. Yeah. And I think that play is just as important. One of the things that I'm learning and I'm practicing, Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown talks about this, that play and rest are really important. They are you know, for long-term health. That's not what mm -hmm. we were taught in our traditional education. No, no. And actually I've noticed, um, I get up very early. I'm up at five. I'm usually, I've usually got an hour long workout under my belt by seven. If I don't do that, my day is, is less productive. You know, you have to feel physically good, I think, in order to be on your game. The days when I'm tired or I've had a lot of stress that I haven't been managing well, the writing will come. It'll be more difficult, but it'll be drier. A lot of the stuff will end up in the scrap heap. Um, so yeah, I think you do. You need to take care of yourself the best that you can. Um, and that feeds into your whole, your whole perspective on the world. It feeds into whatever you're doing professionally. It's just, I think it's it's more important maybe than, yeah, than we were told. Well, and the other thing it sounds like for, as you're talking about your own journey is that you don't have to be perfect. No. And you know what? It, perfect characters are unbelievably boring. <laughs> Nobody wants to read about the, I mean, that is why the villains are always so much more interesting because they are inherently flawed. Um, you don't turn into a bank robber because you're perfect. There's something messed up about you. And that's what's interesting. Um, I love flawed characters. I love characters who are challenged by things that just even little things challenged by how to get their child to school because there's this, you know, the dog is whatever. I mean, whatever challenges you're faced with, I think those are the more interesting characters. I love the themes of transformation. I love the idea that people can change or that people are not necessarily what they seem to be. That is a theme that I come back to time and time again. What you see is not the whole picture. People are very complex and yet we try to dumb them down into 140 characters, if you know what I mean. I mean, we try to simplify who people are by saying, well, I'm an orange red or I'm a, you know, we take all these tests to figure out what personality we are. But when you come down to it, people have so many different angles and, and colors to them and dimensions. And it's just how well you know them, what they show to you. But I, I've always loved the idea that somebody is, I'm talking to somebody and I think I know them, but there's a whole world in their head that I know nothing about. And it's, it's, it's much more interesting to write those people than somebody who's perfect. I'm not even sure how I do that. 
and, and I think that gives for people who are aspiring writers this idea that they have to be perfect or, you know, it has to be, they have to get that 8.5 hours of sleep a night. I mean, we live real lives. We real we live real lives and there are things, you know, I've, I remember years ago I was doing an interview with Brene Brown for the first time and it was going to be about letting go of perfection. We had dead air. And the, the, the fiasco, the, ba- the backstory to that whole interview, which was one of, the, to be one of my most popular interviews of all time, it was, it was a fiasco. I mean, and she was in her car at one point. She was underneath her daughter's bed. She was in the closet trying to talk to me, right? And it was a, it, it was a totally fiasco, but there was so much good stuff in there. And so I think, you know, if we can give ourselves a break, do the best that we can, knowing some days are going to suck. And some days are going to be better. And that sounds like the message that you're trying to convey to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with writing, it's not always going to come easily. It's not always going to look good. It's not always going to sound good. You're going to dump a lot of it. Uh, The important thing is to show up and to do it. It's not going to write itself. Um, You have to build some structure into how you get it done. If that's an hour, a night, a page, a day, you know, whatever you want to do to measure progress. Um, you do need to do that or it, it won't, the work won't happen. Um, so yeah, it's not going to be perfect. And the first time that you work with a professional editor, you'll become just how aware of how un- imperfect it is. Um, it, it can, <laughs> you think you've spent all this time on this manuscript and it's great. And the editor goes through with that red pen and just dices <laughs> the thing up. So it's a bloody mess. And Then you go back to the beginning and you realize, okay, all of these things are works in progress. I feel like I would have written my first novel totally differently now. But at some point you say, all right, it's done and off it goes. But yeah, there's that it's you're making progress all the time. And with this book, Happily Ever After, you wrote it under a different name. I did. My alter ego. She's very organized. (laughs) Yeah. um, There are so many uh, authors, well-known authors that write under multiple names. It's mostly because of, it, it mostly exists in genre fiction. So if you write crime thrillers under one name, and then you want to write romantic fiction, the publisher is going to make you use a pseudonym just for, uh, clarification. Readers don't want to pick up a book with your name and get something they're not expecting. So if they associate your name with crime fiction, and they pick up your book and it's a romance about, you know, a happy couple in Italy. They're not going to like it and they're going to they're going to shout about it. So it's really a way of segmenting um, the audience so that you get what you expect. Uh, so it sounds like um, <clears throat> what happens is that as the author becomes known to their they have their fan base, the, the name of the author is the brand. And yeah. so th- there's an expectation and there can be, it sounds like there could be a betrayal from the fans of, wait a second, you're writing this and I bought this book expecting X. So that certainty factor. That's exactly it. I, uh, I find that really strange. I never thought about it before because I will just pick up a book that sounds good. I rarely pay attention to things like the genre it's in or, you know, there's some writers that I will buy all their stuff and then others I won't even know who wrote it. I just think, all right, that sounds interesting. I'm going to read it. <clears throat> but in the industry, it, it is very, they're very cautious about alienating certain fans. So if you are a romance reader and that's how you're identified, and there are lots of people who are identified this way, they think about themselves. I read romance, I read mystery, 
I read true detective crime thrillers and that's all they'll do. They won't ever go outside of their genre. So you want to feed them what they want um, and you don't want them to be surprised because then they're going to turn elsewhere to get their material. So you're trying to make sure that the expectations are met. Um, and so that's why this book, because it's a, it's more romantic in tone, is written under a, a pseudonym. And is this a common practice in the industry? Very, very. Um, there are so many writers who write under multiple names and maybe more than two. There could be, you know, four or five. If you jump, um, if you jump genres, they will relabel you. And how do you do that in this day and age with social media and, you know, the ability to track down people? It's actually really funny. Um, <clears throat> I got a, uh, I've gotten some email addressed to my pseudonym and it's a little bit jarring because I'm thinking, wait, this is not supposed to be, who is this person? <laughs> it's coming into my mailbox, but I don't know who they're talking to. So it's a little strange. And I think in social media, it just makes it um, much more transparent what's going on. It used to be that all you would learn about the author was two sentences on the back of the book. The author lives in San Francisco with her dog and her cat. And that's all you would know. And so unless you were really dedicated, that would be the extent of your relationship with the person behind the book. But now there's so much opportunity to interact with the author. And I get emails from people who it's like we're friends. So they have a notion about who I am based on what I've written, which is totally fine. I love email, answer them all. Um, but it's funny because you have this connection that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, just didn't exist. So now you can really, you can talk to your fans. They'll give you feedback. You can ask them, you know, what are you reading? What do you like? What's the sort of stuff that, that makes you lay down your hard-earned money for a book? Um, it's a very strange and different relationship. So you do have to be mindful of what you're putting out there. So when you get a fan letter for this book, are you going to be answering back as Elizabeth or are you going to be answering back as Beth? I will be answering back under the pseudonym for the most part. Um, I, there's not, there probably won't be a lot of crossover from people who want to read this book and people who want to read stuff I've written in the past. So I think I will be working on building this brand, this name as its own brand in the romance genre. So does that mean there's more books like this to come? I'm working on one right now. I've actually got one under, I'm working on two things simultaneously, which is a big of a bit of a headache. Um, so I've got something in, in this romance genre and also something that's more mystery focused. So we'll see which one um, floats the top first. So how do you go into your office and go, okay, which book am I going to work on today? <laughs> well, a lot of it comes from, um, a lot of the direction comes from my agent who says, this is what I want to see from you next. Go and do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm all, yes, sir. Absolutely. I'll get right on that. Um, so I, I kind of, I kind of let her direct me in terms of what she thinks is going to be most marketable, what she's hearing people, different editors say they want. Um, and you do have a lot of editors who will say, I want, uh, you know, sex in the city, but I wanted to have some Charlie's Angels in it. Can you get me somebody to write that? And so, you know, they'll come to you and say, do you think you can write this thing that this editor is interested in? And so you always say yes to everything that they tell you that they want you to do. Uh, so that's, it's kind of, it, it's kind of driven by 
her saying to me, this is what I think we should be focused on. And then, of course, you know, there's lots of back and forth with things. So I just sent my agent yesterday um, 10 chapters of something new and she'll have that for a few days and then I'll turn and work on whatever else I'm doing. So you're kind of you're keeping two going at the same time because you do have lag time. So it's kind of it's nice because you have deadlines that are imposed upon you. And that sounds like that's another part of the structure for you to help you get things done. Yeah. Yeah. And once you've sold a manuscript, the deadlines become very hard and fast. And and the first time that you encounter that, it can be a little bit intimidating. So they'll say, four months from now, I need 350 pages. And you may have 80. <laughs> so you might be thinking, well, that's a lot of pages. I better get going. But once you've done it a couple of times, you kind of just incorporate those dates into your head and you work at your pace. And there'll be some days where you'll bang out 20 pages and some days where you'll bang out two, but hopefully at the end, you've got it all balanced. And so do you have like a word goal that you try to write every day? You know, when I'm, uh, when I'm just writing and not editing stuff that I've previously written, I try to go until I'm done saying what I need to say. Um, I have a certain amount of hours, maybe an hour before I need to leave the office. I might be done. I might just be done. I might not have anything else to add. Um, and then I'll stop. I'll usually try to get done with a chapter, which is usually about 10, 10, 12 pages. And do you ever work like through the night? I have, I had, uh, actually on this book, happily ever after, um, my editor at uh, Touchstone was pregnant and with her first child. And she was due the beginning of April. And she wanted this book in production by the time she went on maternity leave. So what that means in production is that the manuscript is done. You have edited, edited it as much as you're going to. And it's going to go off to the proofreaders. And it's going to begin the cycle that will eventually end with it landing on the shelves. What this did was condense our um, our work period to about four months. So what would have been probably a six or seven month process was now four months. And I essentially worked nonstop for those four months so that I could beat Mother Nature and the baby <laughs> with this book. But it was crazy. So Normally, you'll send something to an editor. They'll have it for a week. During that week, you're doing some other things. She was turning stuff around 24 hours, and she was in New York. So by the time I'd wake up in the morning, it would be back in my inbox. And that was really, it was a little, it was a little rough. But it got it done really fast, and that was an upside. Uh, but by the time I was done, I didn't actually remember anything I had written. When I finally got the proof, uh, the proofreading copy of Happily Ever After, there were large sections in it that I thought, wow, I don't remember writing that at all. <laughs> it's like I wasn't there. It was really intense. So that that was probably the biggest push that I've that I've done. And and so that was last April and here we are February. Yes. What? It is an 18 month cycle from acquisition to publication. So really, you may have written two other novels in that lag time um, and you forget all about the one that you wrote that's coming out. So I recently did an interview and um, with a magazine and they sent me a whole bunch of questions and I actually had to use the book as a guy because <laughs> I couldn't remember 
what happened? So, I mean, it's a little funny and people think, well, you wrote it. You should remember. Not necessarily. Um, so I really had to flip through the pages and say, okay, well, all right, I guess I could write about this part. I don't remember this happening, but it did. Well, there's a part where Sadie talks about the all the characters that she's ever written. She goes, that would be like remembering all the names of who she went to kindergarten with. Exactly. <laughs> it's very, it can be very intimidating because you do produce a lot of stuff that goes nowhere. So you're trying to make sure that you're not thinking about this other thing that you worked on after you were done with the one that they're asking you questions about. So it can be, it can be confusing. So what do you do when you're not creative? You go into the office and you're just not feeling it. So what are those things that help you? You can do housekeeping. You can do, you can always do housekeeping. You can clean up your files. You can, you know, down, you can answer emails that have been sitting in your box for weeks. I read the New York Times. I will read the New York Times electronically cover to cover. And that loosens up my brain somehow. It's like, uh, it's like exercise. And then you, after you feel better, you've kind of cleansed. Um, whatever it is that distracts you from your idea that you can't produce anything. And I will force myself to produce at least a couple of pages, even if it's terrible and I delete it immediately the next day. You never want to come away thinking, I have writer's block. I can't produce anything. Can't ever say that to yourself. You got to produce something, even if it's awful and just accept it might be awful today, but tomorrow it'll be better. But there's lots of little tricks and stuff. And you, you always have stuff you need to catch up on. So you can use those hours to kind of tidy things up. You're brilliant. I'm sitting here going, this is like the stuff that I work with my clients on, right? <laughs> here you just kind of figure this out. Desperation is highly motivating, let me tell you. <laughs> well, you know, again, going back to education and um, and I grew up with the Tiger Mom. She had very good intentions. But, you know, her thing was it's about you have to work hard. You have to work hard, right? She's Asian and part of that culture. And... Um, so this idea of going and doing something else to give your mind a break was not something that I ever grew up with, but it's something that I've learned to do, to figure out creative things to like, instead of thinking it has to be done this way, because that's what the time management guru said, mm -hmm. it's allowing that process to occur. And so I know for me, one of the areas that I can become really creative is in Bikram. You know, I go there and I think of, and everybody makes fun of me because you're not supposed to think, but that's where all of a sudden I have all the space. And my brain just goes crazy. So if I know in the flow of my day, if I'm stuck, why try to sit here and hammer it out? Go take that break, right? And I try to do mine in the morning, but it's really important to have those other diversions, like you were saying. It's a really important lesson. Um, you're not helping yourself by beating yourself senseless at your desk if nothing is happening. And I've gotten, I've gotten much more comfortable with that idea that none of it is wasted time. You're not wasting time because you're looking at people.com and seeing what everybody wore to the Grammys. <laughs> it's not a waste of time. I mean, it's feeding it's feeding a need. If that need is distraction, then great. Um, I can't tell you how many ideas have popped out at me just reading the New York Times or something, whatever I'm reading. You get thoughts, you have ideas, you jot them down. They may turn into something, they may not, but you can feel your creative juices starting to flow. You're, you're just loosening up. It's like, it's like stretching out your body. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And then I want to go back to this because you've talked a lot about structure and a word that I used to hate is this word discipline, because I think I made that mean that I had to do it perfectly. So I was like, well, I'm not disciplined. Let me show you. And I would be, I also could be really rebellious because I don't like anyone telling me to do. Right? <laughs> no, neither do I. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm the boss of me. I can right? figure it out. <laughs> 
but I also realized like as an entrepreneur, right, I have total control or I have a, a huge amount of control over my schedule. There's not a boss. There's I'm the one that sets up the structure. But because of that, like I am not out having lunch or going shopping or go when I was an employee, there was much more of that. Oh, well, I'm just going to go do this now, you know, and it sounds like with yours, you have pretty intense structure and you don't mess with it. You're not hanging out downtown um, floating around. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I don't think of myself as a particularly disciplined person. But exactly as you said, when it's all you, it's all on you. It's up to you. It's almost a little terrifying. So you buckle down in a way that maybe you wouldn't if someone else was making the decisions. So at the end of the day, if I haven't produced what I need to produce, it's not going to happen. My coworker's not going to do it. I don't have any coworkers. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's really, there's a, it, it's wonderfully liberating to be in charge of your own time and your own product and your own life, but it is also a huge responsibility and you have to take it seriously. I'm exactly like you. I do not shop. I do not talk on the phone. I eat lunch at my desk. I don't, you know, I, I tend to avoid email and social media as much as I can during those hours. Um, and that's all of my discipline. And then it sucks all the discipline from the rest of my life. And that's all that I, <laughs> that's all that I can do. And the rest of it's chaos. But you really do have to be um, mindful of those things because you you don't want to get to the end of the week and think I didn't do anything useful. Now, I'm not saying productive because maybe what you were doing was just fiddling around with ideas and writing letters or whatever. That's still useful to your process, but you don't want to feel like you wasted the week. Mm -hmm. No, and that was something that I had to learn over time. It was sometimes a lot of times Thursday night, I would just, I was done. You know, I could just feel I'd hit that wall and then I know Friday I'm coming in and have to be really on and be creative and, you know, and, but my body, and I would try to push through it. And finally I said, okay, I'm just done. And I gave into it. And I think it was better. It, was, it allowed the creative process of the interviews to go better. It was just better. And so now because I've practiced that and learned that, I continue with it. Now there are times that I go, okay, well, it doesn't matter. I still have this and I've got to absolutely do it. And, but I notice I'll get it done quicker, right? Than fiddling. Cause I used to could make that thing turn into that 10 minute thing, turn into a four hour thing. Right. <laughs> procrastination. I had to do a, uh, for these 10 chapters I just submitted, I had to write a synopsis. What's going to happen next? And I don't, I don't write with an outline. I'm, I, I wish I could, but I've tried and failed in that area. Um, so I actually don't know what's going to happen next. And so here I am with this blank sheet of paper and I'm staring at it and I don't know what to do because I don't know what's going to happen next. And so I write some stuff down. It sounds terrible and I delete it. And then I just leave. I go out. I get some coffee. I take a few laps around the block. I come back. I sit down and it was easier. You know, I, I, I could have sat there for the next five hours staring at the blank sheet of paper, but sometimes an interruption or, or something physical will kind of jar you into jar you out of that feeling of procrastination and I can do, you know, do these other things and then I'll do that later when thinking you're not going to do it later. You don't want to do it at all. And if you just admit <laughs> you don't want to do it at all, then you'll get over this hump and maybe you can actually get something down on paper. But yeah, it's, that's another, I guess, angle of discipline. You can't, you can't procrastinate and you can't forward it to somebody else to do. 
Which is why I miss that sometimes. (laughs) Who else can I send this to that can be their responsibility? (laughs) (laughs) So as we're as we're wrapping up this interview, um, what are two takeaways that you think are really important in your that helps you in your own um, creative process? So it can be you know it doesn't have to be just to the people who are writers out there, but we all have creative processes. So what are the two probably most important things that we've talked about today that really kind of provide the backbone, you know, of your life? And I think including family, because that's important too, right? So it's, what are the two important things for you? I think one really important thing, and this is just in life, is to listen. Don't be thinking about what you're going to say to the person who's talking to you next, but really listen to what they're saying. Um, A lot of creativity comes from getting out of your comfort zone, processing other people's ideas that may be very different from your own, thinking about what it would be like to walk in somebody else's shoes. Um, That will feed your creativity. It will also make you a more interesting person, I think, over time that you've taken a few minutes to reflect on the fact that you're not the center of the universe and that There are other people out there who have experiences that are interesting just in and of themselves, and it's worth paying attention. Um, Learning to be a good listener is hard, you know, because we are so wrapped up in our own stuff. So I think just taking a step back and when someone's talking to you, focusing as much as you can on them. With kids, too, sometimes we tune them out because they're yammering at us all the time. So you slow down and really listen to what they're saying. Um, It helps them. It helps you. I think it just makes... It makes your relationship stronger. That's one thing that I would say. And the other would be not not to be too hard on yourself. You're not going to be perfect and who cares? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not, it doesn't matter. Nobody's perfect. You're doing the best that you can. If you feel good, don't let it bother you that your friend in New York on Facebook has, you know, whatever she's done that's fabulous that you haven't done. You know, don't Don't let those things get in the way of doing what is important to you, what feels good, um, and just give yourself a little bit of a break. Well, Beth, thank you for coming back on my show today. It's been so much fun to talk with you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. This is Corinne Modekaitis. You've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today was Beth McMullen. She's written her book, Happily Ever After, and you'll find that under Elizabeth Maxwell. And links to um, her book will be on the interview page. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible 
when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.